Welcome to the Pessel, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by Super Mario. Let me get this straight. A plumber crawled through sewer pipes to kill a turtle with a flamethrower to rescue a princess? I bet she was very happy about all of that. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. Tune in for a good time all weekend and hear your favorite classics on K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, writers, filmmakers, writers, filmmakers, uh, actors, I guess is one other thing. Yeah, we do all the things, and we kind of use some of that to analyze films and dive deeper into them, some having more layers than others, um, some being more obscure and abstract than others. But all of it is a is an interesting conversation at the least, and hopefully we can pull out some interesting ideas, philosophies, filmmaking tips, maybe demystify a thing or two, or confuse ourselves in the process, which is always my favorite. I like walking away from a film less informed than when I went in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I say that kind of, you know, jokingly, but I actually do like that. I like films that challenge me and make me rethink what I thought I knew. It's, it's a little easier to walk into a film being sure of life and having that film confirm your beliefs. Like, that's you you just ate a big bowl of ice cream and it didn't do anything for you like you need your peas and carrots man you need to you need to eat your veggies uh and i i have a deep appreciation of that kind of stuff yeah i don't know i know most people don't gravitate towards that i i could make an argument that's been less healthy for society as a whole uh the less you know we can see our literature i feel like sometimes uh dumbing down um in and I think you could make a very easy case for that. If you look back at books that were written 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, don't even talk about 150 years ago, uh, books that largely read the same vocabulary syntax. If you go back and read Mary Shelley, you're going to get a headache in on the first page because she's challenging you with every sentence. She's constructing these really uh, beautiful prose that aren't just easy to pick up off the page uh, and, and digest and process to know what's going on. In comparison, you can pick up a Stephen King, you know, novel uh, who's writing some really hefty, interesting plots and characters. He does excellent character work, but you, you would read his book and it, in comparison, it reads like C-Spot Run. Like we don't challenge ourselves at all uh, with the, with the content we consume. And I, it's, it, I don't know how you reverse that. I don't know if you can, but yeah, I don't even know if I'm trying to go all the way there, but uh, well, how do you feel about, you know, the, the content you consume from a point of frame of uh, being challenged by it uh, more so than just comfort viewing. And I love comfort viewing. I watch Futurama, you know, daily or whatever, but I also appreciate more thematically complex uh, films and how do you interact with that stuff, I guess? Uh, I mean, most of the time, most of the time, everything I watch is 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 deep in some capacity or else I just don't like it. You know, like it's like hard. The harder it is to understand, I agree with you, the, the more I like it because then I'm more immersed in it, um, whether that's movies or music. You know, a lot of times, like especially, you know, like right now I'm gravitating towards more like kind of like 
I mean, for lack of a better term, easy listening, kind of smoother stuff, because I'm listening to the the actual sounds that were chosen, why they're chosen, what their role is in the track and, and what they do for the track when they come in or when they leave, like those kinds of things, which is like harder to hear those things in really loud, heavy music. Right. So trying to get like the nuance, because I think that that's where sustenance lies in the in the nuance that's where you get when when you finish either watching something or listening to something you feel a little bit more full you feel a little bit more satiated i guess if it's not just handed to you or if you like you said you have more questions at the end than you had at the beginning i love that in music a lot of times it's with lyrics but not always sometimes you're thinking you know like like that that felt weird. Why did that feel weird? Oh, it was in six, eight time signature or something or like, or, you know, and you don't even notice it or something or, Oh, there was this, this, um, there were the, this section in this movie that I didn't really understand, but it connected these two points and you know, what was that? And so you got to go back and rewatch it or something and you feel a little bit off. Those are the things that make art art. It's not the perfect connection from a to B it's the it's the dissonance it's the wobble it's the humanity it's the it's the imperfectness that that is and and that could be in what it looks like or sounds like or what's communicated to you right in mm-hmm. the dialogue it could be or it could be all of those things so anyway yeah I, I totally subscribe to the way that that to what you're talking about and and gravitate towards that kind of stuff and even like the the first cassette I was ever given when I was a little kid was U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday Live at Red Rocks. And I don't know. I still can't tell you why I loved that that album. I don't know. It was just nothing like anything I'd ever heard before. And it was live. So there was, you know, it was imperfect. And, and you know, you could hear the, the crowd as loud as the band sometimes. And like uh, it, it you could hear Bono running, you know, in his voice. And so... It was just imperfect, but it was the most transcendent thing that I had ever heard in my life. And I, th- and so the reason I kept going back to it was to answer that question. Why do I like this? I don't know why I like this, but I just can't get enough of it. And I think that's what great art does. It raises that question of, of what, why this, like what, you know, why do I feel the way I feel? Cause it's not telling me why, hmm. you know, it's not telling you, this is how you should feel. And here you go. It's just giving it to you and you process it however you do. And if you can't process it, maybe you'll go back to it. You know, maybe you'll try to ask that question of yourself, either by watching it again or by bringing it internal and asking yourself those questions. It's, it's, it's amazing. Whether that's film or music or, or, you know, canvas or whatever, mm-hmm. it's, that's, that's why art is so powerful, you know? So yeah, I'm, I subscribe the same as you. Uh, to that end, uh, we are covering Taxi Driver, uh, 1976, I believe, Scorsese film. So if you haven't seen this film, please pause this episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Been wanting to do this um, since Joker came out because uh-huh. uh, there's been a lot of parallels uh, talked about that. So yeah, please pause this episode, go watch that. Nice. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about a bunch of stuff. Um, at least this isn't going to be my best episode. I shot. I was on set all day yesterday shooting a uh, a short film that tackled some really difficult stuff. Uh, and this movie, I think, is a really interesting timing on that. And uh, we'll get to it later on um, at, towards the end of the episode. But just in terms of how I'm relating to what Scorsese was was doing in the film. But 
yeah, we'll talk about a few things and apologies if my brain is scrambled eggs and my notes are mediocre. Hopefully there's still a great conversation that comes out of it. Uh, but we'll look at some of the story and writing. Uh, we'll talk about character studies and we'll definitely look at the ending and some other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the, of the film, by the way, uh, I sound sexy because I just now getting over being sick. So this isn't, don't expect to have this sultry voice every time you come back every week. Uh, this is just what you get this week. Sorry. It's annoying. It's not really uh, Todd. So, actually, this is, this is uh, Todd's uncle. <laughs> Rod. <laughs> this is Todd's uncle Rod. Todd couldn't be here. So you got you get the rod. Um, okay. A quick synopsis of the film. A mentally unstable veteran works as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City, where the perceived decadence and sleaze fuels his urge for violent action. Directed by Martin Scorsese. Screenplay by Paul Schrader. Cinematography by Michael Chapman. Featuring Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle, Sybil Shepard as Betsy, Jodie Foster as Iris, Albert Brooks as Tom, and Harvey Keitel as Sport slash The Pimp. Do you like the guy you work with? He's okay. Yeah, but I know, but do you like him? Well, he's funny and he's very good at his job. He's okay. Though he does have a few problems. Uh, I would say he has quite a few problems. His energy seems to go in the wrong places. When I walked in and I saw you two sitting there, I could just tell by the way you were both relating that there was no connection whatsoever. And I felt when I walked in that there was something between us. There was an impulse that we were both following. So that gave me the right to come in and talk to you. Otherwise, I never would have felt that I had the right to talk to you or say anything to you. I never would have had the courage to talk to you. And with him, I felt there was nothing and I could sense it. When I walked in, I knew I was right. Did you feel that way? I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Where are you from? Upstate. That fellow you work with, I don't like him. I, not that I don't like him, I, I just think he's silly. I don't think he respects you. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. You want to go to a, a movie with me? I have to go back to work now. Well, I mean now. I mean like another time though? Sure. You know what you remind me of? What? That song by Chris Christopherson. Who's that? He's a prophet. He's a prophet and a pusher. Partly truth, partly fiction. Walking contradiction. You saying that about me? Well, who else would I be talking about? I'm no pusher. I never have pushed. No, no, just the part about the contradictions. You are that. So, this is a, uh, a big film. A lot happening in here. Uh, it's hard to get past for me anyway the the performances between obviously Robert De Niro is just breathing fire in this film um but Sybil Shepherd is doing some really interesting 
stuff in this. Um, and does anything need to be said about Jodie Foster? Uh, no, that's she unbelievable. Um, and even Harvey Keitel, I didn't know that was Harvey Keitel. It won't surprise our regular listeners that I couldn't see the, the forest for the tree. Um, but even he was in rare form. I, I feel like I've never seen Harvey Keitel take on this kind of character. Um, and he just melts right into it um, as, as the pimp. And so, yeah, I mean, performances aside or whatever, like we have never seen, this is my first time watching it. This was your first, first time watching it. It's been, I know, I know it's been on the bucket list uh, for, for quite some time. And it's a film that we both were like, we know we need to watch this um, at some point. If we do an episode on it, it'll force us to actually confront it because this feels like a movie you confront. Um, this isn't, you know, grab some popcorn and, uh, you know, your your girlfriend and uh, you have a good time, right? Hey, mom, let's, uh, dad, let's let's sit down and watch Taxi Driver together. It's Christmas time. What else are we going to do? Um, you, you confront this movie is my impression of it anyway, before sitting down um, and watching it. And... I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was getting into almost at all. I'm aware of Travis Bickle as a, as a, not an icon, but, um, as kind of a, a vignette of, you know, humanity, uh, in certain realms. And, and so I, I'm aware of some of the conversation around it. Uh, maybe you're, you haven't been, but I'm curious what the experience was like sitting in this and getting to know this, this universe of Bickle. I hate seventies movies. I, let me just start with, I, I hate seventies movies. I think that they're bad. I think that, I think 90% of the acting is bad. 90% of the writing is bad. The, the lighting is awful. It's everything is so dark. It's like nobody had a Kino back then. Like nobody knows. It, it was just, I just don't like them. Uh, most of them. Well, in 76, I don't think there was a Kino. But well, you know what I mean. The equivalent point taken. Yeah. A, a light that you aim in a, a direction. Light. Busting my balls. Um, this is this is a masterpiece. This to me is like unbel. I can understand why people would say you haven't seen Taxi Driver. You know, I hate when people do that shit. But I can understand why people would say that you're a movie buff and you haven't seen Taxi Driver. You know, and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, okay, I'm expecting this to be good. It's Martin Scorsese. It's Robert De Niro. It's, it's Jodie Foster. It's Sybil Shepard. Uh, it's like all heavy, heavy, it's all it's heavy hitters. And it's Scorsese in the seventies. This I'm expecting this to be good. And it was That's a lot. That's a lot to live up to. It's a lot. Exactly. It's a lot. And it was better than I could have imagined from the first, from the very beginning when Travis walks up to, and to, to get the job as the taxi driver and his interaction with that guy there's just something about about De Niro, especially in at the beginning. I mean, he's look De Niro. Like anytime he's on screen, just like sucks up your attention. Like you, he's he's fantastic in everything he does. But something about him in the '70s and the '80s that like you can't print on anything anybody else. He just has this way of pausing at the right moments to then deliver some kind of line in a way that's that's almost aloof like he just came up with it in his head you know like yeah. like like he's acting um 
And from the very moment, the very beginning, uh, you see that, right? And then the casting is fantastic. Sybil Shepard is, I did not know how gorgeous she really was. Like mm. I've seen her, you know, I saw her in like, you know, the late eighties and stuff when I, cause I was born in 80. So I saw her in, you know, a, a bunch of stuff and she was older and, and pretty, but I have, I had never seen, she was gorgeous in this film. And not only was she gorgeous, but she was undressing him with her eyes up until he brought her to the movie. Like she was like, oh, you're going to get it, man. You know, like you, uh, you've got me. I am, I am with you. Take me where you want to take me. Like, and his performance to get her there was, was just as riveting. It was like watching, I don't know, but they were fantastic together. He was very aggressive. She obviously liked that and responded to that. But a, a lot of her acting was through her eyes. Yes, you know, she had dialogue that she said and everything, but the way that she looked at him was, was oh my gosh, I want you. The, the whole time, from the moment he walked in the door, like she was like that, which is incredible acting for me. It's like, if you can act without saying words, you know, if I know what you're thinking without you saying a word, you're a great actor, you know? And um, anyway, yeah, there's so that yeah, all of the acting was... Sorry, there's that moment whenever they're going into the theater and it's such a great I love what she's doing here because, you know, she she's in for something really weird. You know, it's a it's a porn theater or whatever they used to call them. I don't know. I'm I'm sure they had some fun little quirky name, Um, but whatever. It's a theater that's showing porn and you can see she's like, am I is this is this a joke? Uh. Uh, but I'm going to go along with it. I'm trusting this guy. Like, okay, I'm not sure that, you know, this is okay, but he seems completely comfortable. He's not twitchy. He's not nervous. This is like to him, they're about to go watch a Bogart movie. And so you can see on her face, this apprehension. And yet this like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to laugh along or it's not even that it's, uh, I'm, I'm trusting you even though I'm feeling like there's something else happening here. Uh, but okay. Yeah. Cause she's got this wry look on her face. It's like this very slight smirk um, as she's asking questions and he's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's totally fine. Couples come here all the time. She's like, oh, okay. And then when she's in the movie and you can see the embarrassment start to hit her and she has to escape. Uh, there's so much that she's doing, even in the way she's rejecting him. Uh, she's, you can feel, you know, womanhood in America, struggling to reject a man right who's being aggressive like you said he's grabbing her arm like he's being very physical with her and she's having to do she doesn't she no longer knows who she's dealing with she thought she was getting an idea and then everything flipped on her and now she no longer knows so she has to be very light you know is how she feels in that moment with how she rejects this this weirdo because you reject the wrong person in the wrong way and you're a headline you know, uh, and so you start to feel that as an audience member watching this, uh, you start to feel all these little things that she's going through the transition, because like you said, at the beginning, when she's getting to know this guy, she can't take her eyes off him. And even in that clip we were playing, you know, she's watching him and her responses are like, she's in a trance, like, yeah, I can't stop watching you. I don't know what this is, 
but you are oddly hypnotic and she is just there with them and like, okay, I'll go along with this. Um, and let's see where this goes. And yeah. And so she's doing some really subtle, uh, fantastic, you know, acting on the screen to, to, you know, build this world out and let Travis have a win before they turn it into a fail. But yeah, sorry. Uh, and no. So other than acting, yeah, you were going to say. Oh, just so moving on from Sybil. I mean, obviously De Niro is <laughs> literally perfect in this movie. There's like not a moment. I mean, after it, the best, the be- most amazing. You can tell that Scorsese loves De Niro and De Niro loves Scorsese. You can tell it's like a dance, man. After he sh- after he shoots sport and then walks around the car and then just goes and sits on the, the on the stoop. stoop before he walks in to the to the um the brothel like i don't know if that was meant to happen or if he just decided to do it but scorsese went with it and just hung on him there let him sit there didn't call cut like just lived lived with it and you can tell it's like a dance the whole time like between them i also loved the you know, I was watching it through a lens of 1976 too. Mm. you know, that like, like there hadn't, as far as I know, been movies like this, right. Where it, it really explored like the, the, the psyche of, of, you know, a possible psychopath or like, like someone who is losing it, you know, or, or like, you know, just anti-establishment, you know, because the establishment had shunned him. There was, there, there hadn't been, as far as I know, a film dedicated to those people who felt like that right like you know no matter how hard they work no matter you know how uh, how much self-worth they had you know they would be rejected right for who they really were you know when those people saw who they really were so he allowed this to be that he allowed the the he allowed the cursing he allowed the sexuality he allowed the violence uh, not being afraid to tell a story that could be looked at in you know in the future as smut you know remember this is, i mean this is 1976 like you know you tell that story today you get joker or mm-hmm. something to that equivalent and it there is a group that will celebrate it right whatever that group might be there is some 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 form of individuals that will come together and say i identify with this but in 76 nobody's going to stand up and say and say, oh yeah, I I very much identify with Travis Pickle. Like it was, he was this, right? He was this guy who was losing it, and I didn't know in the end what was going to happen, and and which I'm still I have questions about, you know. And maybe we can talk about that um, a little bit. But but in all, amazing film, incredible acting, incredible writing. The cinematography was beautiful. Uh, the shots in the car were amazing. Keeping individual shots in that have nothing to do with this, with, with the story as a whole, like, uh, the guy wanting to just sit in the car while his wife was, uh, up in the, in the apartment, like with another guy, let's tell that story. Cause, cause Travis deals with that, you know, like that's his work, you know, where he's okay. Now I'm going to sit in this car for three hours while your <laughs> wife is with some other guy. Well, he deals with that, you know? Um, and there's a few others too, but having those are like really important. And then, you know, having the moment where he reaches out to the other taxi driver and he's like, I have, I have these bad thoughts. Like that was a really super powerful scene. He's reaching out, trying to get help. And the guy hel- helped him as much as he could, 
but you know, he's a guy in the seventies. He's a strong man in the seventies basically says, you know, pick up, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going. That's all he knows how to do. You know, like, like therapy was not a thing really back then. And mental health was definitely not a thing. And men didn't know how to talk to each other. I mean, they really still don't, but it's better. But having that moment where Travis is like saying, I need help. I'm, I'm thinking about bad shit. Uh, it was super important. And that's a brilliant, has such brilliance on, on Scorsese's part. And I keep saying, remember, this is the seventies because this happens all the time. Now I think in movies, yeah. we get it now. We, we've got to tell both sides. We've got to tell the side where the, the, the quote unquote villain has the moment of clarity where they need to ask for help. And then they just don't get it, you know? Um, and then we also have to show the bad side. Um, and we know that now, but in the seventies, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't uh, the height of a thing. It was like Scorsese's thought and not just Scorsese, but, but Paul Schrader who wrote this thought, we are going to make this guy real. We are going to make people identify with him, whether they say it or not. We are going to address things that have happened to many, many people in different ways, but we are going to show that, but all landing on one guy and what could happen when that happens. And the last thing I'll say is the other brilliance of De Niro here and Scorsese in the editing is that De Niro's change from, you know, quote unquote normal to, you know, this killer guy was like, it, it, it was, yes, it was, it was progressive, but it was, it was like jittery. It was like, he'd have this moment of, of like, like almost rage. And then he would pull himself back and then like bigger. And then he'd pull himself back and he'd do something crazy. And then he'd come back or then you, you'd think he'd pull himself back and then he'd shave his head and he'd act like he's going to, he's going to try to kill the, the incumbent, the, uh, the politician. And then, and then he doesn't, but you know, everything calms down. So it's kind of the pace of the film, but also the pace of him. So that by the time we get to the end where he actually starts killing people, or, I mean, he kills that one, that one guy who robs the the convenience Mm. store. But when he, that ending scene that towards the end of the, of the film, I don't know where he's at. I don't know. Is he at the, I'm going to go on a killing rampage point now? Like it's this whole push and pull kind of thing that he has. And I think that we all have that. Sometimes, sometimes we have this feeling of, I want to, I want to just pull my car over to the other lane and like hit a, hit a pole. And other times I'm, I'm like, like, how could anybody think to ever do that? You know, we have these crazy thoughts sometimes that just, or not crazy, but just random. And, but his problem is, is he's whatever thought is in his head, he acts on it. I'm going to go get a gun. I'm not just going to get a gun. I'm going to get three of them. I'm going to find ways to trap. So anyway, I thought it was a masterpiece. I just, it, unbelievable. And while I was watching it too, cause I know what, uh, I knew what kind of a day you had yesterday and I'm interested to, to talk about that too. I, I was thinking about you and just thinking like, wow, what a crazy timing to watch this, this film, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, what'd you think? Yeah, man, I, same. I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect walking in. Um, I love the look, uh, they, he really committed to, it felt like I, I felt like there's a lot of French new wave influence, uh, going on here. Like if you can watch this and not, if you've seen the 400 blows, I can't imagine 
uh, and I don't think you have, but uh, it it takes on some of the same ideas, even the way it opens uh, with you know watching the the taxi drive around the town and shots into the rear view. It just I feel like it's echoing the four hundred blows uh, in French New Wave style in moments, um, maybe not in perfect totality, uh, but. It's it's beautiful, I think, in its honesty. I think it's really hard. I love character studies just as a genre. It's a very small genre. I don't feel like there are a lot of character study films. And maybe that's because Hollywood, you know, accountants don't get rewarded <laughs> uh, by character study films unless it wins an Oscar, right? Um, which I don't think this won an Oscar, actually. And so, or at least not Best Picture. Uh, and so watching this, I... I yeah, I love character study films because uh, you're taking a person and you're putting them under the microscope. Uh, and this did such a great job of just throwing him in different situations uh, to let you begin to carve out who is this guy. And, you know, a lot of questions get posed. Uh, how does he handle rejection? How does he handle success or failure? What are his morals or his life philosophy? You know, what does he want? Because he doesn't even know what he wants. That's kind of his problem. That's why he starts driving in the first place. He doesn't know what to do with his life. So he's like, more hours, the better. You know, um, I can't sleep at night. Why can't he sleep at night? You know, what's what's keeping him from falling asleep? All we really know is that he was a former Marine um, and he's had a little education here and there. That's about the extent of his backstory that we know. We hear him writing to someone. I never really pick up who he's writing to. I assume it's his parents. That's kind of the feeling I get. Uh, but I don't read, I can't make out what the, who the dear Mr. and Mrs. or was it mom and dad? I don't know. And so I love that because the most important thing is what you said a minute ago, which is it's, it's, it's not cut and dry. It's it, you're looking at different angles of this guy. Uh, and that's so important for a character study to make the characters complex. Character study study should never be simple all good or all evil. And this guy, as much as you want to paint him as this entirely evil guy, he's not exactly that. A lot of things happen. I think at the core of it comes back to the the very simplistic thing of his conscience, because there's that moment at the very opening scene where we learn, right? The, the, the guy asks him, how's your driving record? And he says, clean, real clean, like my conscience. And so he's, he's pointing out he doesn't seem to experience guilt or empathy throughout the entire film. We never see him experience any guilt or empathy, uh, really just judgment. There's that moment whenever he clearly, you know, is uh, not happy that Betsy didn't like the film that he went to. Like, I wouldn't say that's guilt or, or empathy because he doesn't understand why she didn't like it. He never understands from her point of view what went wrong there. Um, and so there's this like disconnect that he has with society. He's, he's not just socially awkward. He's not just inept. There's a fundamental divide between his ability, uh, to walk through the world while also understanding it from other people's point of view. And I think that's kind of at the heart of what goes wrong with this guy. Everything that, that happens in this film as he's going from situation to situation, you know, can be understood from him trying to understand the world and ultimately just not liking the world, right? There's a lot of judgment that he places on everyone, even the people he's trying to help, right? Uh, we see him go through a lot of stuff. One of those situations is Iris. He's trying to save a child prostitute. 
this is a good goal. Like as much as we can hate on this guy and there's plenty of that, uh, to, to pass, uh, this is actually a noble thing. You know, he's white knighting for sure. Trying to go to the rescue and save the day, save the princess from the castle. He does it in the, you know, the, the worst ways. Right. Uh, and when he fails, which he does, he gives her all this money and tries to, you know, get her to, uh, to flee, go, right? There's that crazy moment where he's, she's like, yeah, I could go to this commune upstate. And she invites him. And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And she invites him and he laughs it off, right? Because ultimately he's above his own advice, right? It's rules for thee, but not for me. That's not me. I got more important things to do. Uh, and he starts coming up with this bit about working for the government. Um, and so he's living some other alternate reality from everyone else around him. And it's a good thing. He's he's actually trying to do a good thing, even if he's going about it the entirely uh, wrong way. But it's his lack of empathy, his lack of ability to understand other people that not only keeps him from achieving his goal of saving this girl, but also of, you know, getting anything that he wants and being effective at anything that he wants to be effective at. Uh, and which kind of goes back to what his buddy says when he goes to him for advice, he has that great moment that, you know, that can hit you like a hammer if you're not ready for it, uh, which is this guy says a man takes a job and that becomes what he is. Look, I've been driving for 10 years, right? I'm still not driving my own cab. You know why? That must be what I want because I haven't done it. This is who I am now. Um, and it's just a really profound look. There's a famous, uh, we were joking uh, the other day with somebody's and we're talking about your record uh, in sports and Bill Parcells, the big tuna was in this interview when he was a coach for the Cowboys and there, this <laughs> Bill Parcells and, and coach Greg Popovich are two coaches. You never want to interview. Don't ask these guys questions. They're just going to like grab your question and whip you with it. <laughs> like you're going to get beat. <laughs> And this guy, this reporter asked him something along the lines of, you know, hey, uh, coach, you're you're four and six. Uh, do you think you're better than what your record shows? He's like, no, our record is what we are. You know, yeah, we've lost some close ones, but we lost. Your record is who you are, <laughs> you know, and it's like, man, the life you're living is who you are. Uh, and this cabbie is trying to tell him that, like, look, you're young. You still got a lot to to live and go, go do, go be things like go have experiences. I'm telling you right now, I've been sitting here doing the same thing for the last 15 years or whatever it is. Uh, and that's just who I am. I, and it sounds like he's accepted it. He's okay with it because you know what, that's an okay life for him. Um, and if that's not the life you want to have, you need to do something else. Uh, the problem is we see him interact with all kinds of other people and his, in his lack of empathy clearly is kicking him in the nards uh, in every reality. So we, he, he goes and hits on the girl at the porn theater, which I'm sure she doesn't deal with that 24 hours a day. Bunch of dudes who are lonely uh, going to watch porn publicly. Uh, they have no shame. She is going to be targeted by everyone buying a concession. And of course she rejects him, right? He gets rejected flat. She barely looks at this guy and, uh, he kind of shrugs it off. Ultimately, he's like, okay, whatever. And then he hits on Betsy, succeeds, and then blows it. And I love how we meet Betsy. It's really interesting. This gets a, to a little bit of that uh, French New Wave style because we're just doing these candid shots on the street. I don't know if these are actors. I don't feel like they are. I feel like they just grabbed a camera and we're walking down the street grabbing shots. And then while we're doing that, we actually pass by Travis Bickle. 
And then we kind of reverse and learn that it's Betsy's POV that we've been watching while listening to Bickle's voiceover about her. Right. He talks about the first time I saw her, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you're starting to feel uh, the male gaze, right? The male gaze being this idea that uh, women are objectified by men everywhere. Um, it's a it's a tricky thing, even while discussing the film, like to, to discuss the way she's been made more beautiful in the film than anyone else in the film. And that helps her stand out. She is easily the most attractive person on screen. And that makes her pop out and tries to help you identify with uh, what Travis Bickle is seeing and experiencing um, and ultimately how it goes wrong. Right. But I love how we enter a whole new scene after we meet her. We suddenly jump into the headquarters of uh, I keep wanting to say Palpatine, but it's Palatine um, to completely maybe similar <laughs> no uh, characters. Um, and we we go into this headquarters and we're just hanging out with her and it feels like we're suddenly picking up a whole new thread. And we're about to enter a whole new character's story. Right. And we're sitting there with her and with Tom and they're having this back and forth. It's kind of cute. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, is there a vibe here? Is there not a vibe here? And uh, it's interesting until she mentions uh, that they're being watched. And he's this guy's like, I don't know what she's talking about. She's like, put your glasses on. Hold on. OK. And I love that. We, we cut to a shot of him wearing his glasses. He says, hold on one second. Okay. <laughs> you know, he never moves. It's a great edit. Great comedic bit. Albert Brooks is a legend. And we suddenly cut to what she's looking at and it's him. We're still in his world. We never left his world. And now we've gone from we're we're hanging out with the guy to this guy is being super creepy. This guy is like hanging out and staring. It's like he doesn't even know he's staring. And as he finally goes in like goes for it right he goes for the gold and i think it's if if you're a woman you're used to getting hit on it's probably easy to get very annoyed by dudes coming up out of nowhere and hitting on you totally get that that's why I re what's the the 40 year old virgin quote something along the lines i respect women i respect them so much i never talk to them <laughs> like like, I, I get it. Uh, as a guy, it's really hard to approach someone, a stranger, and, and, and just go for it, right? And he finds his courage, right? He's like, I'm going to go for it. Of course, you also have to be good at uh, being rejected and just as gently slinking back away and like, hey, all good. Have a good day. You know, send them on their way. And he goes for it. He, he walks in, all courage in the world, and he never even looks at Tom, right? He's just like, no, sir. I want to volunteer to her and, uh, and he steps up, he get, he starts really towing the line here though. Right. He starts uh, saying really weird stuff to her about, I think you're a lonely person. That's pretty freaking presumptuous. Uh, but now we're learning more about him. We're learning how he approaches strangers and people that he doesn't know and how he brings in his own judgments, his own values um, and just imposes them on another person. Yeah. It's, it's very telling about him and she's, like, okay, there's a lot of confidence. And I think that's what she's responding to. And it gives her, we see her consider. It's not like she's all in right away. Uh, she considers, she waits and she's like, she has to get talked into it. And she's like, okay, uh, four o'clock. If you're here, we'll go grab a cup, cup of coffee. And they do, of course. And it's just really interesting because as their progression uh, relationship, quote unquote, slightly progresses, he adopts her, a political hero. Right. Suddenly, Palantine is the man. 
And oh my God, he's in my cab. Sir, I love you. Uh, I think you're going to win. Oh, what do you like about me? I know nothing about you. <laughs> I, I don't know, right? This is all just BS. He doesn't understand it. But the thing that his his object of affection, right? Emphasis on ob- um, object is all that really matters. And he's reflecting all of her glory and he's adopting it onto his own. And the danger of that, of course, is when that glory goes away, he now despises everything that she loves. It becomes uh, this you know, symbol of everything that he's trying to destroy. And that's all he has against Palantine because we never discover what is his thoughts on whatever is uh, welfare. We never discover any of his, we have no idea because it doesn't matter. It's just a reflection of his relation of um, Travis Bickle's relationship with Betsy. And it's just, it's excellent just as a a frame of reference for a lot of things about society, lonely men, loneliness in general. There's a lot of lenses you can throw on this, right? Uh, In the same way, you know, we start to explore his peers. We meet his peers. How does he fit in, right? The way he's sitting around this conversation at this cafe and he throws in this acid, and he starts losing himself in the bubbling, and he's just feeling it. And you can feel something bubbling up in him. And he talks about later in the film, there's this thing that's inside of me. It's been building for a while. And it's all speaking to who he is as a person, right? And we see the whole thing with his conscience, right? Like you said, he, he kills this robber in a convenience store. That's an interesting reflection. Let's see how he handles this. Oh, he has zero issues with it. In fact, afterward, he's emboldened. He doesn't just feel uh, complicated about, I just killed a guy. I don't care if you're doing the right thing. We've I've read plenty of stories of someone doing the right thing who kills someone, and they are haunted by it for the rest of their lives. Murder is a hard thing. It doesn't matter if it's righteous or not. You've taken another life, uh, and, and it's, it damages you. And instead, what does he do? Now he's sitting around his apartment holding this massive 44 Magnum watching a dancing show and now he's, it's like he's contemplating on his loneliness because he see these, sees these couples together uh, and you start to feel the loneliness with the shoes that are just sitting there in the middle of the dance floor. That's him. It's a reflection of him. It's all these beautiful little symbolic moments of him seeing himself in other places or not seeing these other places, including him. Like it's, it's all just, you know, uh, prisms, um, and refractions and, uh, it's just really, really well done. Uh, but I love it because the world that he lives in is actually complicated. There's complicated things happening. There's the, the, towards the end of the film when he goes to kill and we can assume that he's going to kill, um, based on everything that unfolds, but we don't really know that before that scene unfolds, we see the, the pimp and he's talking with a guy and he hands this guy money. It's a cop. It's an undercover. Um, and you see this guy wearing his gun on his hip in New York. I don't think there's a lot of citizens running around with a gun on their hip. And so what you can assume from watching this is uh, it's not spelled out, but the assumption is uh, the cop is taking a payoff from a pimp. And then the cop goes in, right? Uh, and he's with the prostitute. And this is all just very gross. Um, and you're, you're, having to build out the world of everything that happens after that. Um, in fact, we, let's talk about that. What did you make of the ending? He goes in, he smokes everyone in order to save this 12 year old girl prostituting herself. And then 
the film shows him getting better, going back to driving. Um, he's in the, in the press held as a hero, um, even by the girl's parents held as a hero. Uh, and ultimately, you know, he, he lets the girl, uh, go. Betsy gets in his car and he kind of smugly drives away. Right. And I'll take another look at that here in a minute, but how do you interpret all that that happened after the, after the big shootout? I, I honestly don't know. (laughs) I, I, that's the one thing where I was like, how is this? Like, you can't be a vigilante, you know, you can't just go around killing people, even if they deserve what they get, you know, like those, like those assholes did. So at the end, when he's laying on the couch and the cops come in, they're holding him at gunpoint and he does the whole finger to the head kind of thing. I was expecting him to raise the, you know, the empty gun because we, we know the gun's empty, you know, because hmm. he, he, he showed that they're empty, he tried to kill himself and stuff and he tried to shoot it. Um, but the one that's attached to his arm and I expected him to raise that and then them to unload on him. Right. And him to basically commit suicide in that, in that forced suicide in that way. But he didn't. And then he lived and then he goes back to work and I'm like, no, he should be in prison. Like what the, and, but, but th- maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the, the point is like, you know, the, the system doesn't always not only help those who need it in that regard, in like mental health regard, but even see it, right. Even see the, acknowledge that it exists, you know, this is 1976. So maybe it is a call to that of like, look, this guy needs help. Not only does he need help, he should probably be in jail where he can't hurt anyone else. And yet not only is he not in jail, but he's being looked at as a hero. I'm not, I'm not because that hopefully would not happen nowadays, even though I'm sure it probably does. You know? Yeah. So here's my interpretation, please. So that moment you're talking about finger to the head. And then from there, what happens is that we float away from the murder scene, which by the way, that shot is amazing. So incredible. Okay. And it's this top down perspective tracing the bloody crime scene. And then eventually we go from top down into these close ups of blood on the wall and gun on the floor or whatever. I think what they're communicating is he's dead. And the rest of the scene, the rest of the ending is this death rattle fantasy. And we cut to, you know, the media clipping showing that he's held as a hero we're listening to this voiceover letter from Iris's parents saying that he's loved and regarded as a hero and his last fare is Betsy and he doesn't let her pay. He smugly rides away. He doesn't say a word to her, right? He watches her in her rear view and then something interesting happens. I watched it like five times. I kept rewinding it um, is that he catches a look at some after he drives away, he's watching her in the rear view and she leaves the, the rear view and he catches a look at something else. And I think it might be us, the audience. And then he quickly shifts the mirror away. It's this very quick jerk of the mirror. Um, And suddenly we're just spending the rest of the time as the credits roll, riding down the street, watching reflections. We're not seeing him. We're not seeing anything. Um, And so I think this is all representation of him dying. And it's this fantasies that he's had in his head that everyone would love him once he did whatever he was going to do. It didn't matter. I think he probably would have thought the same thing if he had killed Palantine. And so it's just a sick fantasy of someone who, like you said, did something horrible. Doesn't matter if, you know, 
it had the result, this vigilante result that uh, he thinks was the right thing. And it's just how he wants to see himself. And it's the, the classic, I got over on the person that really hurt me, Betsy, right? He's just imagining, yeah, and she's going to want me and I'm going to walk away from her. I'm going to reject her. Uh, it's just that classic bullshit scenario. We've all had those scenarios in our head, right? Where uh, we didn't get the job and uh, you imagine they call you a month later after you found some other good job and uh, you just hang up or whatever, right? You have all these uh, revenge fantasies and this is his. It's like, I finally, I'm wanted by the person uh, that rejected me and I got to finally, you know, shove it in her face and without saying a word, right? He never I says think you're a word. Totally right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Right. It feels obvious now when you say it out loud. Yes, Um, (laughs) it feels absolutely obvious. Yes. And I love it. I love it. I think it's it it, it's really smart. Uh of course, uh the danger is there are other people, um, the bickles that might actually inhabit our world could watch this and see that, yeah, you get to be the hero if you just take it into your own hands. But there is an alternate version of this that I was thinking about where, okay, let's assume that everything is what it presents and it's not symbolic and instead, or some kind of metaphor instead it's, you know, he lives and maybe it's a bad media portrayal, right? Because the media is constantly looking for villains and heroes, right? They're not good at nuance or complexity. They're just selling papers with absolutes and striking headlines. And it's, it's easier to sell a hero than it is to sell a guy who should be in jail um, and locked up, even though he did maybe a, a communal, communal good. And so I think that's an interesting, and that's what I was saying earlier, right? There's so many lenses and perspectives you can throw on this film uh, and have a really fascinating conversation about it. And I don't know if it's all right or wrong, but I think it's it's all worth exploring to some degree or another just for the sake of complexity and, and complicating your world. I We don't live in a simple world, and I think my frustration largely comes out of people who try to simplify uh, a complex world because uh, it makes them feel better. It makes them sleep better. Uh, okay, I mean, I guess fine, um, but tomorrow you're going to have to wake up in a complicated world, uh, and if you never learn how to deal with that, then you're you're giving yourself psychological problems uh, that you won't know how to handle whenever you know the reality of uh, society hits you in the face, uh, which it does at some point or another. It always does, uh, and it's never easy. It's never cut and dry. And so, yeah, that's my interpretation of the ending. Uh, is mostly it's a it's a sick fantasy, and the other half is. Uh, I don't know, just a a commentary about the way the media uh, is looking for a headline instead of looking for the truth. Yeah. I don't know. I love the movie even more now that you've (laughs) said that because I didn't really get it. I didn't really, I didn't see that. I didn't get it. And I was too into, I'm just going to follow the story. Yeah. And, and, you know, but this is, this is that kind of movie where you, you know, you watch it and with a, with a friend who sees it in a different way and you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. I didn't see that, man. I've never, you know, we've been doing this with this episode 216 now. Yeah. And, and there's been only a handful of times where, where I have totally gotten it wrong and you've set me straight. And this is a good one. This is where I actually like really like the movie even more now knowing that. 
And whether that's the case or not, I don't even care. Yeah. That's the way I want to look at it. Cause yeah. I think that that is, that's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think that, I think that kind of underscores the point of the film, which is that it's a, it's a bit of a litmus test. It's a Warshak test, right? Where how you choose to interpret it, uh, can reveal a lot about the way you see the world. And now that, you know, you have this other idea and it's, it's relief, right? You're like, Oh, that feels better. <laughs> like I, that's, yeah. that, that's telling on the kind of person that you are. Whereas yeah. someone else that watches this and sees a hero, uh, it's telling of, you know, what you're, what you may be thinking and viewing the world. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It didn't, it doesn't necessarily feel better. It feel, I mean, yes, it mm. does feel better. It does. But it, <laughs> in, in regards to like, you know, him getting what he deserved, it's more of along the lines of like, it feels like it makes more sense in, yeah. in the, in terms of a linear story that would happen in this existing world. Right. That's, that's, so now I could watch it and think, no, this makes total sense he's already dead or he's dying and this is his last throes of thought, you know, or something like that. Or this is, or we're seeing into what he had hoped would happen. Like you said, you know, post-mortem, whatever. And yeah, it makes, makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because it is, it's a, it's an interesting story. It has a, a lot of complicated, you know, topics that don't always feel complicated. Um, to us on the daily, but whenever you're forced to sit and observe someone else's world, it suddenly starts to feel more complex. You know, just the, the whole issue with this film is weirdly still relevant. Like we still have this crazy incel court culture that's kind of sprung up and it's sprung up out of a good place. If you look up at the, the origins of that word, you'll see that the roots of it were actually really healthy and an attempt to help lonely people and lonely men deal with their loneliness. Um, and out of that grew something very toxic. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting because you start talking about things like the male gaze. That's why, you know, I try to be very careful uh, what I say on the show whenever, you know, we're talking about women on the show. Uh, I try to be specific if I'm going to compliment someone's looks. I want it to be specific to the context of the film. And so I almost never do it. But if I do, I usually I'm going to make it a joke, uh, a bit of a bit. And so, you know, just to make sure everyone feels on the same playing ground, right? It's a, it's, it's tricky because we all go through a different reality to some degree. We're all experiencing the same things in different ways and holding that all in your head can be very exhausting <laughs> uh, when you're trying to relate to someone and understand someone else's world and perspective. Uh, it's, it, it takes a toll and, I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm so tired all the time, but uh, because I am a sensitive guy uh, and I, I, I try to keep that, all that stuff in mind. And it's, it's tricky uh, in a way because of the stuff that I want to write. Yeah. And maybe we can get into that in a second because that'll kind of start circling back to Scorsese um, and what he did in this film that I really appreciate and respect. Um, and before we, we dive into that, my last note is just about some of his directing, which was, I love the voiceover letters, the ones both uh, that he writes home, uh, Bickle, and also the ones that the parents write him at the very end, because they're very stilted. 
and they feel very my summer vacation, right? A kid standing up in front of the classroom, stumbling as they read out loud to the to their peers and to the teacher. Um, you can feel like wobbly knees a little bit, right? And, it's like, and then, you know, thank you so much for the cake that you sent me. I appreciate that. Uh, and it's just, I love the texture of that. It comes off as a little remedial and honest. I think that's the thing that it really communicates is they're getting at some of their deeper truths um, and it's a little uncomfortable um, and we're not good at communicating. Maybe that goes back to the stuff that you're talking about in the, in the seventies and eighties and uh, bit of the night. I feel like in the nineties, we started getting a little bit better about uh, therapy. And then really over the last five, 10 years, we've gotten great at talking about therapy just recently. Because uh, even as a kid growing up, my mom wanted to put me in therapy and I, I rejected that. <laughs> like that was, I just wasn't having it. Yeah. So it's, it's always been a complicated thing and sitting and listening to them kind of read and talk. It's like, they're not good at discussing their feelings and, and communicating. Um, and you can kind of hear it in the delivery what they're saying, how they're saying it. I just love the directing choice there because there's other films that have letters, right? And they're very fluid. They're conversational and they just, they feel like the, you can feel the the characters uh, pop through a lot more. Travis Bickle reading his letters is not the same Travis Bickle we see interacting with the world. Those are two different things. Um, and it's just a really strong directorial uh, decision, I think. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll circle back here in a second, um, for final thoughts, but, uh, before we do, let's do some of the house cleaning stuff. What, uh, what are you gonna, what are you gonna recommend this week? Uh, I'm going to stay on the Scorsese train and recommend a film I haven't seen in a while, but I remember really loving, uh, Shutter Island from 2010, um, which actually, um, a couple of my, my, uh, in-laws, my brother-in-laws, brother's-in-law, are in town and they had just watched uh, Shutter Island and, and said that they loved it and they're movie movie guys too. Oh. So I need to go back and, and watch it. It's been several years, but uh, I'm, that's why I'm recommending it because I'm about to watch it. Nice. Yeah. I, wa- I want to say I saw that in a screening uh, before it was done and it was, yeah. it was an interesting experience. I mean, I've gotten to see a couple of early Scorsese films uh, before they were released and that's, I mean, I'm no, no one special. I was in a crowd of people that had connections. And so uh, just being, you're special to me. I'm special. And so nice. I I'm on the fence. Um, I think I'm going to recommend the peripheral. Ugh, that was close. I was thinking about the 400 blows. I feel like if you've seen taxi driver, you've probably seen 400 blows. If you haven't still do that, but I'm going to recommend the peripheral. It's a TV show on Amazon prime. It's what's interesting about it. And I think connects is, this it's based on the work of an author from I don't know 60s 70s uh, something like that uh, named William Gibson and it takes place in the future so it's science fiction uh, if you're familiar with William Gibson you're familiar with some of his uh, incredible works that really influenced uh, culture and the thing that I'm really loving about it actually is there's so over the last two to three years I'm I'm always looking for new actors to get excited about and it's been frustrating for me because over the last couple of years most of the actors that i've been like excited about have been women uh there's so many talented women coming up that i'm like i cannot wait to see what she does next she's got the talent uh, i've seen her play the first characters i'm talking about people like jodie comer vanessa kirby uh samara weaving um that are just killing it 
uh, Taylor Russell, I think is someone to watch. I I've seen her in several projects that I'm like, Oh my God, I need to see her shift a little bit in, in character, but she is wildly talented. So there's so many up and coming actors, not that many dudes. Every time I feel like I get excited about a new guy, I feel like I watched them do kind of the same stuff for three or four films. And I'm like, okay, you're now you're just kind of being the same person. I, you're clearly comfortable and you know how to work the camera. Um, you know, you know how to frame a moment and your, your skill is there, but you kind of keep playing the same character and that makes me sad. And so I look at someone like, uh, Jack Rayner in the peripheral, super excited about this guy. I've watched him in a few projects now. Um, he's in sing street. He's uh, the big brother. If you've seen sing street, he's a big brother. Uh, and I haven't seen him in too many other things. And then he pops back up in the peripheral playing this, really different character and i'm like oh my god jack rayner you better be getting in all the projects uh because i just want to see what else you got in you um and so yeah uh if you like sci-fi um and you have prime go watch the peripheral um and so yeah stay tuned uh oh artist spotlight this week new song friend of the show scott garrett graham uh, he's got a new song out called i'm not hopeful Love it. I love every time he switches his style up and just explores something else. It just speaks to me, man. Uh, keep doing you. Uh, and you you said he did everything on this uh, track. Is that right? Yeah, did everything. The All the, I, I don't know. He might have he might have hired somebody to play drums. I'm not sure, but he mixed it and everything too. God, yep. he's good. He's really yeah, good. Yeah, man. Good stuff. Stay tuned for next week. We're going to take on a listener request. Um, we got a couple coming. Uh, this first one is requested by Seth. We're going to do Braveheart. Uh, so we're going to go back and uh, find out who William Wallace is. Um, yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> Me too. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, review, leave us a note. It's something you want us to talk about, kinds of things you find interesting. Um, let us know. And you can drop a note on this episode at thepestlepodcast.com slash taxi driver. And our quote of the day today is from Jodie Foster. I don't think it was uncomfortable for me. I think it was uncomfortable for other people, but it wasn't really for me. I had been an actress for a long time. I had done a lot of movies before I did Taxi Driver. To me, it was another role, and I understood the difference between making movies and actually being a person, so it wasn't really impactful for me. I don't think I was confused by the sexuality in the film. That's good to know. That's good to know because she was very young and, you know, anytime you see a, a child, I, I think about this all the time. I, I'm not sure if it's because I'm a dad or not, but, you know, when you see little kids um, in movies, especially in like really difficult movies, you think, you know, what are they, are they aware of what's happening? Is the crew and the director trying to keep them, you know, a, away from understanding what's going on, you know? Um, but yeah, and, and that's good to know. Uh and yeah. it's it's also interesting because, you know, if you look at, you know, like, I, I mean, just to use like Joaquin Phoenix as an example, like he's very separated from his roles. Like he'll come in and he'll like destroy a role, like just do it, like go super deep and then he'll be out of it. And it's like, it, whatever, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't hold on to stuff. And that's interesting. I'm not sure if Jodie Foster is that way, but to know that she was that way for this film actually like makes me feel good. So. Yeah. Same. I, I have those concerns as well about watching young actors take on really difficult. And this is one of the most difficult roles I've ever seen an actor take on. Like she was actually 12 years old 
filming this and watch reading some of their her other comments about it you know she was kind of joking about it she was like i was fine but you have you know marty over here he's telling me okay now um unzip his pants and he starts laughing he's like i robert you do it bobby you, you go uh now robert de niro is trying to give her direction and um they're all struggling to sexualize her um, because of their own humanity, right? These are the real people directing a real kid to do something really inappropriate. And I just have a deep respect for Scorsese for going through with it, for going through with his vision. Um, and it kind of circles back to what we were talking about last week about Tarantino um, and some of his approach. Uh, and it, because I, I kept thinking about it after our conversation and about is the, is Tarantino, is Scorsese, is any director's responsibility to the art? Is it responsible to the culture? Is it, are you responsible to your your audience? Like who? What's the pecking order? What's your what's your priority? And I think it has to be mostly to your art. Now, obviously, there is a line. And this is very gray area stuff. I'm sorry, I'm a gray area human being. But there is some line and it's nebulous, right? We we don't exactly know where that line is. And obviously Scorsese was dancing very close to it. At one point, right, she's about to take her shirt off and you can feel like the, I felt like I could feel all of the audience start to pull back like, oh God, no. And like he stops her and like, thank God. Because at this point, we still don't know who Travis Bickle is. We don't know where the scene could possibly go. Uh, he hasn't really made known how he feels about what she's doing. And he's kind of going through with it. He's kind of, he doesn't guilt uh, the pimp. He doesn't say anything to him. He's just like, okay, fine. And he just pays for her time and takes her into the room. And we just don't know where this is going. We see her pressing the gas. Um, and it's just a weird dynamic to have a 12 year old pressing on this, you know, adult man. And so it's wildly conflicting. Um, and I just respect him for doing it. But also, I just had to know, like, how did Jodie Foster, as an adult, how is she reflecting on this role? And I love reading this. This was, uh, from what I understand, a recent quote. And so it's not like, you know, a couple of years later, she's, oh, now she's 14. How did you feel about two years ago? Like, you still don't know. And apparently, and in, in scrubbing a little bit of the research, I Apparently, uh, Scorsese also had her go through a lot of psychological uh, testing to make sure she would be okay. This was beforehand to make sure she would be okay to to go through this role and to to handle everything. And you know that went well. I'm assuming there was some you know aftercare involved, but I love all of that. <laughs> it's it's hard to make art sometimes, especially if you're trying to hold up some kind of mirror to society. You're going to have to deal with difficult conversations. Uh, I've heard a similar thing with Tarantino's other film, Django, right? Where DiCaprio was having a really hard time on set. Hey, man, it's a film. We're all playing a part. Get on board. Okay, here we go. I have so many stories I want to tell, and I, I tend to avoid telling them with kids because of this I, I don't know how much I can go through that. Uh, but yesterday I was working on set with two 13 year olds, uh, two 13 year old, you know, girls. And, uh, luckily it wasn't, it was, it was heavy content, but approached with a very light touch. And so 
uh, I didn't really have to get into anything overtly difficult. Uh, there was nothing sexual, of course, but um, it's very much a, a story I told about my own childhood, which I've never... I bring myself to every script that I write, uh, at least most, if not every, uh, some experience, some something that I can make it personal and I, I can identify and insert myself into this world, no matter what story I'm telling. I just always keep it abstract. Even if I'm telling, quote, my story, it's still way convoluted and distorted from what I actually went through. This was the first film that I wrote uh, that was basically a, a transcription of, of what I went through. Man, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> like, that's oh, a, really? That's really? a one and done. I have plenty of material from my life. In uh, my stance on, I, I at some point we've talked about this on the show before, but I'll reiterate: uh, anyone out there listening, your life is not a good movie because you what is interesting and, and hard hitting to you is not going to hit the audience over the head. Like if you start writing your script and you think oh man, and then a guy pulls out a gun and shoots another guy. That's crazy. Like if that happened to you in real life, yeah, if that happened to you in real life, that is crazy. But we see that on on the screen all the time. You have to start thinking around just what is crazy about what you've experienced and instead think about what is the audience experienced and how can you insert them into a story in a way that will make them feel what your characters are feeling. And so the entirety of your life is not going to make a good movie. What will make a good movie or a short film at a minimum is a moment of your life. Now we have something specific you can build out. You can describe this moment that you felt this very real thing. And it could be whatever, something as simple as someone you got home from takeout and they forgot, you know, the, the side sauce, your ranch dressing wasn't in there. And now this can be a story because we, we can identify with that uh, and you can build things around it. Why that was such a big deal to you in that moment um, and why that sent you on a ninja revenge of kicking everyone in the head at your apartment complex. I don't know. Whatever happens after that, right? We can now dial into this one specific moment, expound on that. And I think that's what makes for good stories, not your whole life. Your life story is dull as shit. Trust me. Uh, but a moment of your life that's fascinating if you want to turn that into a story yes or build on that in in, in some abstract way yes uh, but i also don't gravitate to movies about people's entire lives i i kind of hate those movies as a as a whole yeah and so i i just really loved watching this and watching jodie foster tackle this because she is right if you go look at her imdb her movie her film credit history before taxi driver is vast she was out there she stepped on the set working ready to go to work ready to turn in a performance crafted with nuance and uh, specificity you don't find that <laughs> like that's she was a diamond in the not in the rough just a polished diamond sitting there uh you just don't find that with 12 year old actors uh, and so kudos for scorsese uh to to finding her and to Jodie Foster for, man, just being, because <laughs> you just destroyed it. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's as far as I want to go there. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, looking forward to it, man. Yeah, it was great to be a part of it, too. And um, I know it's an important story, so can't wait to see that. But, yeah, guys, thank you. Finally, we've done Taxi Driver. It took 216 yeah. episodes, yeah. but finally we've done it. So get off our backs. 
There we go. All right. Please let us know in the comments what you think. Uh, did we miss something? Is there some other form of the ending that you think that should be? Just let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, make sure to join us next week. We're, we're covering Braveheart. And uh, as Wes said earlier, please share us with your friends. Review us online. Uh, subscribe. All that stuff helps out a ton. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Thank you.